or parents would like to take them, we have people that will show you the way that direction. We'll invite them back in after the message today and come join us again. Lots going on. We're going to be in Psalms here in a few minutes. If you'd like to take a Bible out and get ready there, that'd be great. Um, Psalm 44 is where we'll be. Psalm 44. I, uh, I came in a little late during announcements. I know, I apologize, Alistair, if I did that. I don't even see him here. Is he here? Did he talk about baptism at the lake today? He did. Okay, so you all know we have lake baptisms today, right? All of you, right? And what time is that at? Three o'clock. Where is it at? Lake Siskiyou, the campground side, or the Pay Beach. So you got to pull in there. you got to bring a couple, little bit of cash and pay the people at the booth to come on in, okay? Um, listen, a couple things I just want to mention just as your pastor about that. I mean, Alistair's one of your pastors too, but I, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to come and support and to, to worship the Lord, uh, to really just come and, and say, God, you're first, and we are going to um, re, re, uh, rejoice with those who are coming to be baptized and are coming to say that, hey, he's first. And so um, I would love for you to be able to do that. I also, uh, not only, so not only do I extend an invitation to the whole church to come out and be a part of that, uh, and to support and and uh, and be there. It's it's. I know it's an afternoon, a little bit of an eruption in the day, but uh, it is so worth it. Um, but I also would encourage you. Um, maybe you've been thinking about baptism for a while, and you still haven't. You know, you haven't filled out the card and said, "I want to do this," or you haven't come talk to one of the pastors and said, "I want to do this," but you know you want to do this, right? Um, baptism is a, is a wonderful, amazing opportunity for us to proclaim Christ publicly, and and not only that, it, it is it is our responsibility to be obedient to Christ. When he said to follow us, that we should follow him in, in baptism as well once we come to faith in Christ. You know, our faith in Christ is a private, personal decision that we, we make with the Lord, right? That, that we enter into this relationship with Christ uh, through faith and that he saves us and he forgives us of our sin and we are washed white as snow by Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and we are guaranteed eternal life with him because of what he did coming out of the grave, raising from the dead, amen? That's an amazing thing, right? Our salvation, the greatest miracle there has ever been or will ever be is a salvation of the human heart. But once that's done, that's a private decision, right? There's now an opportunity for us to be public about that. And so there's a private profession of faith we make to the Lord, and then there's a public profession of faith we make before people. Not only before our church body, we can also do that before the world, right? And let them see. And see, uh, when we go, to, uh, let's just talk about what baptism is briefly. I've I mentioned this a lot in, uh, in my office during counseling times and, and, and talking about baptism. Baptism is, of course, a public profession. Um, I, I like to call it the wedding ring, right, of the faith. In fact, this week, I, for some reason, I had placed it somewhere I didn't know where it was, and um, I went to work without it. So I was in a counseling session about baptism. And I'm like, oh, I can't use the wedding ring analogy, right, except this nice suntan line that I have. Right? But, but here's the analogy. Like, if I take this wedding ring off, am I still married? Absolutely, I'm still married. I'm still married, okay? Um, but when I put it on, it what? It shows and says, I'm married, right? It's a, it's a, I'm, I've entered into a covenant relationship with my wife. The same is true about baptism. It's like the wedding ring, right? It shows the world publicly that I have entered into a covenant relationship, that he has entered into a covenant relationship with me, and I want to proclaim that, right? There's nothing special about the water. The, some, people, some people say, I want, to, I want to be washed of my sins when I come um, and get baptized. Uh, Lake Siskiyou water will not do that, right? This baptismal water will not do that. But we are not coming to be washed clean. We are coming because we have been washed clean, amen? 
And so we show the world, Jesus is everything. He washed me clean. And it's also this amazing imagery, this, this, uh, this showing that when I go under the water, it's like I'm in, in this grave, really temporarily, like I've, I'm dying. That old person that I was, the, the person that was living in sin and lost in sin, the, the, the person that was dead in their sins is, is dead. It's, he, he or she is gone. And I'm rising out of the water to newness of life, and I rise out in Christ alive. And I show the world that. I have, I have crucified myself. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And I want to proclaim that publicly. It's the old person is gone, and behold, all things he has made new. So it's an amazing, amazing image of that. And so when I say that, we're all like, man, yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing, right? So for you who are, who's waiting, you're like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I'm nervous about that. I get it. But what I have just said about baptism did not make it about you at all, did it? It made it all about Jesus. And that's what it is. Baptism is all about Jesus. I know it's nerve-wracking. I mentioned it to somebody who's getting baptized today. I said, I, I, I was saved. I was a Christian probably around eight years old. And, and it wasn't until my mid-late teenage years when I finally said, okay, I've, I've got to do this. I, I need to quit waiting and quit, quit like being nervous. Right? Who would have thought I would have been nervous in front of people? but I, I was. I said, he's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth showing off to the world. So if you haven't been baptized and you, and you have put your faith in Christ and you would like to follow in obedience and do that today, I would encourage you to see me or Alistair or one of our other elders today after service. Uh, worst case scenario, you come to the beach at a little before three and you say, Brandon, 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 I want to do this. And I'm going to ask you a few questions because I want to make sure that what you're doing is a public profession of a faith you already have but we'll be like, hey, sweet, I'm glad you brought a towel. Okay? And even, if he, even, even if he didn't bring a towel, we'll still dunk you, all right? We're gonna show, show off Jesus today. So I really encourage you about that. Uh, we are also gonna just take a minute to pray. Um, pray for ourselves, pray for our, our nation, but pray for those in Hawaii right now, in Maui. Right? There is some extreme suffering going on and uh, amazing you think about the wildfire scene that we usually are inundated with here and the different stuff locally that we have experienced over the few, last several years, the half, you know, half a decade. But, but to think it's happening in, in Hawaii now. And, and so we're going to stop and we're going to pray for the folks there. We're going to pray for how we might uh, be able to, to serve and meet needs there. Um, and I think you'll, you'll probably hear in the coming um, days and weeks um, ways that we can assist and help and be of best help to those over in Maui. We'll do our best to, uh, to figure that out for you as well and let you know. So let's, uh, let's go to the Word or go to the Lord in prayer. Would you mind? <clears throat> Father, we, we come today, first of all, to commit our time to you and commit our lives to you, our heart to you. God, we're, we're here to lift you up, and God, we're here to be taught by your word and God, to learn. God, so humble us in that way. And God, as we humbly approach you, we, we look around the world and we see devastation in so many ways, in so many places. And God, that, that troubles our heart. We grieve over that. And God, even for those uh, in Hawaii, we know that that's, that's near and more maybe dear to our heart because many of us are tied there in some way to someone. And God, so we, we are very much more um, evident of the suffering going on there. So God, uh, we pray. We pray for those in Hawaii. We pray for those in Maui. God, uh, for those all, all in Hawaii, there's so much going on as far as rescue and, uh, and help from other islands and, and just private parties and boats and ships and planes. And God, so much is needed there right now. So much is needed. God, and there's been so much, so much loss. So God, first we, we surrender to you and we know you're Lord and that God, you, this has not surprised you. God, you are still on your throne, and God, you, you're holding people in the palm of your hand. So God, as, as they go through this horrible tragedy and crisis, God, and, and loss, God, I, I pray that you 
would make yourself so real right now. That, God, they would sense your presence and your power, God. They would sense comfort from you. And, God, that your people, as they are rising up all over uh, in, in the islands, God, and on Maui, God, I pray that you would, you would send your missionaries, your ambassadors, revealing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's hope in him, bringing comfort to the, to the nation, to the, the state, God, to the island. God, we, we pray for the resources that are needed there to, to get there. God, there's so much going on. God, we pray that the winds would die down, and God, that you would bring the rains. God, you, extinguish, you would extinguish this fire. God, we pray for uh, the recovery efforts. God, there, there have been so many lost. There are so many that are missing, God, and there are so many first responders and volunteers on the island that are searching through debris or can't even search yet. But God, there's so many, so many that have been lost, God, that they will be recovered. And God, we pray for that. God, we pray for those workers who are, are going to see things they maybe have never seen in their lives. That God, that they would run to you for their hope. God, for the trauma that's to come from, from loss in families, God, or, or God, from being severely injured or just injured because of, of the severe trauma. God, I, I just pray that you would be near. That God, you would be guarding hearts and minds that people would be running to you to find the peace they need and the hope they need within. They'd find, find the answer is Jesus. God, there are going to be those who, who feel guilty because they didn't die or they escaped. God, I pray that you would remove that guilt from them. God, we continue to pray for the, the, the coordination efforts of all those who are involved. God, whether it be govern, government, that's a uh, federal government, Lord, uh, different world governments helping, God, local government there on the island. God, that uh, their ducks would be in a row, that you would provide the people and the, and the resources necessary to, to save and to rescue and to supply for needs and uh, food and shelter, God, gasoline, things like that that they need right now most of all. And God, most of all, God, we, we want people to know hope that is in Christ. God, we want to, from afar, first of all, pray, and God, be directed by you of how we might come alongside and serve. God, whether it's to partner with someone and go and help, or whether it's to send relief, uh, or to raise, raise funds, whatever it is that we are to do, Lord, that you would direct us and you would guide us and we would know that is clear from you. We entrust them to you. God, we pray again that you would guide us today in our service as you already have, as we've heard from your word, as we've prayed, as we've lifted you up in worship and God even sung those songs to each other into our hearts. We pray that you would continue to swell up in us more pride, or more, more pride for you and boasting in you. God, that we would, we would celebrate who you are and God, that our faith would increase that we would humble ourselves and that we would live by faith. Thank you. We offer this time to you in Christ's name. All right. We are in Psalm chapter 44. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, I'd appreciate that, Psalm 44. Um, we are just cruising through some summer in the Psalms, and uh, this was a long one, and um, this is by no means meant to be um, a verse-by-verse exposition of this psalm. In fact, it's so long, we're not going to read it together first. I'm just going to uh, give you a little introduction, then we'll head right into the, the main three points regarding the psalm and, uh, and break it apart as we go. Now, the, the writer here, uh, the sons of Korah, uh, the same writer as the Psalm 42 and 43. And so we just covered Psalm 42 and 43. And uh, Psalm 42 and 43, like I said last week, were likely one song that's been split up into two. Uh, and the psalmist was someone who was, was struggling, not, not only with what was going on around them, but what did I say last week, right? What was most paramount they were struggling with was, was themselves and, and being able to believe and to trust and to hope in God despite the circumstances and struggles that were around them. Um, and the author was struggling to find peace. But ultimately, we found that 
the author in both, uh, of both 42 and 43, right, same one, three times decided that he would preach to himself, right? And we see that uh, in the psalm, and we see it in Psalm 43, verse 5. He said, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Remember the quote last week I read to you? We've got to get a hold of ourselves and preach to ourselves and tell ourselves to, to get with the program, right? And to put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior, my God. This was the decision that was made to preach to the heart in the midst of circumstances that you didn't feel like preaching to the heart. And he said, I, I've got to do this. And I've got to put my hope in God, despite what's going on around me, despite how difficult it seems that I will hope in God. I will rest in God. So he ultimately finds that peace through his hope in God as he preaches it to himself. But now in chapter 44, he, he's writing not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of the nation. He, he's not the only one that's struggling. He's not the only one that's suffering. The nation of Israel is, or the remnant of Israel is struggling. There is a national crisis, and they're feeling like, we're not as big as we thought we were. We're not as, as protected as we wanted to be. There is oppression. There is persecution. There is crisis. And they cry out, just like all of us do. I, I want to take you through just a, a quick progression, I think, of the human heart. And I think we go back and forth with this probably all our lives. Uh, it was actually, this is something that just, just dawned on me as I prayed this morning. And God's like, this is what's going on. So I, I want you to bear with me. If you're taking notes, you can kind of maybe on the side um, write this progression. Uh, here, here's the progression of life in human history, right? We're born. Right? We, are, we are born and we are so, so small and so, so fragile. So you can write in the, write in the um, text or your notes there, small, we're small. But then we start to grow up, right? And we start to learn things and we start to be able to have strength and have opinions and we we kind of look at the world a certain way and eventually as you get into your what do you think parents 10 going on 15 age you don't feel so small anymore do you what do you feel i feel big right it's like i'm big we, we grow up and this pride swells up it's like i know what i need to know i i've seen the world i understand reality i know how to interact because i've been in junior high and I am so, so big. And that actually will extend from really, you know, probably more like five years old through 35 or 45 or a uh, long time. That will extend, right, in this, in this really spiritual adolescence that we have. Until there comes a point in time, so we have gone, right, we were born, we're small, and then we're, we're big because we got it all together and we're strong. And then there comes a point in time where we realize maybe I don't have all the answers. Life's a little more difficult than I thought it was. I thought I knew what I was doing, and I, I really don't. In fact, it goes deeper than that, and that, that's just kind of the phase human beings go through. I don't know if I have it figured out. Oh, yes, I do. It's big and small back and forth. But once, we're, once we get to the point really where not only do I not have it figured out, but that I have realized that I am actually not strong enough in any way on my own to ever accomplish anything that would stand before God, now we again feel the proper amount of what? Small. And that is a really good place for us to be. Small before God. Not just small before my circumstances and small in my, in my dealings with people and, and be kind of being humbled because someone might have known more than I did. But, but small in spirit. And we, we started the lord's uh the sermon on the mount with that right we talked about the idea of being poor in spirit and mourning and 
Like you are small. And then, and then something amazing happens for those who would humble themselves because in your smallness, we should humble our heart. We should humble ourselves. And so something amazing happens. We, we see a God before whom we are small, but we see a God who loves us and has extended his mercy and his grace, not just his mercy and his grace, who has extended his big mercy and his big grace to those who would put their faith and their trust and their hope in him. And what he has promised is, is if you put your faith and your trust and your hope in him when you are small, that he will forgive you and he will lift you up and make you what? Big. Big. The first will be last, but the last will be first. I know it's kind of hard to say. I'm, I'm, God's big. I'm not big. Well, but he's making you big because he's big. If you put your faith in him and not you, put your faith in you, you're going to be small. You put your faith in him, you will be big. So we, we see how, how big we can have. And this is about living now in the right perspective that I am now big, not because of my, my own you know, knowledge or experience or how great I am. In fact, it's the opposite of that. I'm now, I'm now big because God is big and I am his. And our perspective should not be now of my own little kingdom, but of his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's the perspective I want to hold on to. That's the, the kaleidoscope, I want to, the lens I want to see through, right? All my life. Here's the problem. We aren't in his kingdom yet. We still live here. So you know what Satan wants to do? Is distract you. To make you not look through the lenses of the kingdom of God and how big he is and how big he has made you and how secure you are in him. And he wants to just make things go to chaos for you. So that you feel small in some way and inadequate in some way. And then you put your hope in yourself again. Or you put your, your hope in, in a circumstance that, that needs to change, and if it does, then, that, then I'll feel big again. He distracts you away, and he starts to let you and make you look at the world and the circumstances that are here instead of him and his kingdom to come. So th this is the natural progression of the human heart. Now, if you never come to faith in Christ, you will go through this, all, all, and Satan's like, oh, good, I've got you where I want you. You don't have faith at all. You're, you're big, you're small, you're big, you're small. And you keep on filling your, filling your life with things you think are big, and they run out and you end up small again. But, but God's big mercy, his big grace, will always be enough. As long as our hope is in him and not in ourselves. So we, we see that kind of played out and lived out today in our text of Psalm 44. I've titled this, um, Truth in the Face of Trouble. And, and it's sometimes it's kind of hard to keep coming up with titles for these psalms that are saying the same thing over and over and over to us. But I think this is kind of where I've landed. I thought originally maybe this is more of a redirect of the heart, and sometimes this is what needs to happen. But today it's, it's about a truth in the face of trouble, and it's a truth that we need to believe. So we are in Psalm 44, and we're looking at truth in the face of trouble. Number one is this. If we want to see a truth in the face of trouble, number one is this. It is God who establishes. That's a truth, right? In the face of our troubles, in the face of what, what's around us, it is God who establishes. So the psalmist is writing a lament, a cry out to God, and, and look how he begins here in verse 1. God, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days, in the days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. 
For they did not take the land by their sword, their arm did not bring them victory, but by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. You, you are my king, my God, who, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you we drive back our foes. Through your name we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes, and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. Selah. Remember the Selah there is, is that, that pause, and it's like, let that sink in. And it's a refrain. It's meant to be sung in the, in the church. And so we, we sing about what God has accomplished, that, that is God who establishes. And so because it is He who establishes, we will boast in God all day long. And, and it's, that's the key to really being strong in the midst of, of chaos and, and the key to remembering. And, and, uh, and know, it's, it's knowing and remembering that God is the one who establishes, that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, that God pursued you, that while you were still sinner, God, Christ Jesus, died on your behalf bring you to life that it's God who establishes now it's interesting you see that we uh the psalmist says we have heard with our ears our ancestors have told us about the work you accomplished in their days in the days long ago it, what do they know what what do these people know as the psalmist writes this as this lament and this cry out to God like saying God I remember you established we're talking about Israel we're talking about Moses pulling a people out of Egypt Right? We're talking about a song that was sung and then later on a law that was given and, and it was charged to the parents to, and grandparents to teach this and teach this to one generation and another generation and another generation continue to talk about the faithful love of God, that it is God who establishes. In fact, from Exodus 15, we see this in Moses' song as part of it. It says this in verse 17, um, you will bring them in and plant them. Same language we saw in, in Psalm 44, plant. Right? Moses is giving glory to God. He says, God, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. This is a truth that they knew, and they knew that it was God who was established. But we have to be very, very careful. And the psalmist, you'll see in a minute, is, is going to get a little bit like, I don't know what's going on here. Because Israel was protected and, and it was made to thrive and, and they didn't have to lift a sword. God did the work for them or God would send them in. It would just be an easy battle and done. It's like God's always been on our side. And it's so simple for us to get that mentality like God's always been on my side physically here and now. So I'll always prosper. I'll always win. I mean, we have Bible stories that we've learned since we were children, right? What did David do? He killed Goliath. I mean, and what are we taught? That, that, hey, whatever Goliath's in your life, whatever's going on in your life, you're going to be like David and you're going to be able to kill it. And then we go out and live our life. We're like, Goliath's winning. This isn't working. Why? Because we move our heart from where God is wanting to plant us and what God is wanting to accomplish in us. We move our heart from there to the here and now that it means something for me right now physically in my life where I'm at where I'm at and it's, it's even worse for us as Americans because we have such a cush time 
You try telling that to the people who are persecuted in North Korea. They're like, oh, we're going to die. I mean, I'm surprised I'm not dead already. It's not even noon, but I'm, I'm surprised. Every day, good to see you. I'll probably kill you in the morning. That's what they go through every single day. They, they, aren't, they aren't griping about, God, when you kill my Goliath. They are, they are happy to suffer like Christ suffered for his sake. And, and, and why? Because they understand that God has established them as his people. And he will not let them down. They may die here in this life, but they will live in his kingdom forever. Because God is big and his kingdom is big. So that's part of the truth, right? You, got, you bring them out, you plant them. But, but here's, the tru- here's the real truth of the crux of that. In, in Psalm 33, we see this. Happy, blessed, settled in heart. This is really important for us. It's important for the psalmist in 44. It's important for us today. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. There's a happiness and contentment that's supposed to come to our hearts because he is our Lord and we are his people. It doesn't say happy is the people whose whose God is the Lord and he conquers all their enemies. It says happy is is the people whose God is the Lord who has chosen them as his own possession. I want to see this in in 1 Peter. How does it kind of look to us even more? 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, You are a chosen race. Again, this is God choosing us and planting us. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that, here's the so that, here's why we are this. So that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right now, right before this, Peter Peter's talking about the folks in uh, who are, are stumbling over Jesus. He says, "You know, God has established Jesus as this rock, as this cornerstone." And 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 Peter says, it, it, "What he is is actually a stumbling block." He says. Uh, He is a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, but they stumble because they disobey the word of God and they were destined for this. Obviously, people who reject Jesus are going to stumble all over him all day long. But I think we stumble with Jesus sometimes. He's that rock and and we don't sometimes settle on him. We we bump into him and we're like, what are you doing there? What what did you do? And we trip over him. And, And it's that same way in our heart when we have this tension of, my life should look a certain way. My victory should look a certain way. God should be slaying my Goliaths right now. And it's not happening. And we're stumbling all over Jesus. Because Jesus did not, did not die. He was not crucified. So you could have victory over your Goliath. See, the greatest Goliath is not the nation that persecutes you. The greatest Goliath is not the people in your place of work or your family that may look down on you because of your faith. The greatest Goliath is not the circumstances of your life, whether it be cancer or, 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 or tumor or some other chronic pain or, or bad finances or a rough marriage. That's not the greatest Goliath in your life. The greatest Goliath in our lives is that we are dead in our sins. And what did God do with that Goliath? He killed it dead by offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross. So that those who are small, like David, those who are small, could also have victory over death, over that Goliath. And that's what we're talking about. 
That's the hope we have. He says, I've, I've chosen you, I've planted you so you would proclaim my praises. You, you'd, you'd reveal to the world the one who slew the Goliath, who pulled you out of darkness and into light and, and that gave you mercy when you didn't have mercy and I'm now your God. So we need to redirect our heart to what is really true. That's the truth. That's the, that's the truth of God's victory for us. Whether we live or die or we prosper or we, we perish, it, it doesn't matter. God has had the victory for us over sin and death once and for all. We need to redirect our heart to the truth. Truth in the face of trouble, God establishes. God establishes. So they had this in heart. God, God has done this. God has made us a people. Well, what does he say? He goes on. Number two, what is the truth in the face of trouble? It should be for his sake that we suffer. It should be for his sake that we suffer. Let's continue on in our psalm. Verse 9 and following. He, he, just, he just put his trust out there. He said, you, you established. You're God. You're powerful. There's a lot of Goliaths. And now he talks about Goliath. Probably the wrong ones. But you have rejected us. Talking to God. You have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe and, and those who hate us. They have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long. My shame has covered my face. Because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. There, there's, there's something to be said here. A couple things. One, uh, the mocker, the scorner, the reviler will get their judgment. I mean, it, it, those who mock God and say, whatever, God schmod, I don't want anything to do with him. He's not powerful. He's not here. I'm Goliath. He's doing nothing to me. They will one day stand before God. They thought they were big, and they will be very, very small, and they will get their, get their own. There is also something to be said as we look at this text, which is, I think, really amazing and, and pure on the author's uh, heart. Uh, it says, it, my point was what? That, that the truth in the face of trouble is this. It should be for his sake that we suffer, which means it's not always for his sake that we suffer. Sometimes we suffer for our sake, right? Sometimes we suffer because we need to suffer. We suffer because we have we have earned the consequences of our sin. That in our rebellion and in our pushing away God or even just considering God not to be, not to be acknowledged, we, we set him aside and we suffer. So certainly you and I are going to suffer because of the things in our life. The natural consequences to sin will be suffering. And, and what's amazing about God also is that he disciplines the ones he loves. So as you might be suffering, you may have sinned against God in some way. You may have been kind of pushing him aside, if you are suffering, I want you to count it as God loving you. Just like a child should count a parent who disciplines them in the right way, love. My dad loved me. My mom loved me. They gave me guardrails. They gave me a boundary. They said, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Let's establish those marks. And I want to hold you in, in here because this is what's safe and good. God has done the same thing for us. And when we go outside of those boundaries, there, there's a struggle with our own heart and there's discipline that the Lord gives us. But, but we, we don't see that happening here. 
they aren't suffering for something they have done. They're, they're, they're embarrassed, they're persecuted, they're mocked, they, they feel like they've been like sheep just handed over to be eaten and slaughtered. Look at verse 17. All this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you. So it's really important for us as we suffer to evaluate why are we suffering. And I think the psalmist is doing that. It's like, wait, have, we, have we forgotten the Lord? Have we pushed him off in some way that we have forgotten him dearly and deeply? He says, no, we, we have not forgotten you. Well, then have I betrayed his covenant? Have I, have I turned to some other idol? No, we have not betrayed your covenant. In verse 18, our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path. So I, I love it. The psalmist has been very introspective and thinking, have we sinned against God? Have we wronged him in some way? It should be the first thing we ask when we're suffering. And then he, in verse 18, or 19, he, he, he said, first of all, he said no. And then verse 19, but God, you, you've crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deepest darkness. So he says, we haven't sinned against you, but we suffer. Verse 20, if, if we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to foreign God, uh, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? He's, he's, he's again, evaluating. I, I, we haven't turned to another God. We haven't forgotten God. And if we had, he understands that as a child, as a, as a planted child of God, established child of God, that God, his father, a good father, would have disciplined him and said, hey, hey, this is wrong. You need to stop doing this. Right? We haven't done that. But then there's this acknowledgement in verse 22, and we got to catch this. The psalmist finally understands and recounts, like, th this is what's going on. It's not because of my sin. It's not because of our sin as a nation. But what does he say in verse 22? Because of you, or for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Yikes. That's tough. That, but that's a reality we have to face. It's, a, it's something we have to understand. That the truth is this. The truth in the face of trouble is this. It should be for His sake that we suffer. It seems we are destined to suffer through this kingdom and into his kingdom. We're on the way to the next. It's, but it's for his sake that we suffer. And, and there is credit being established for that. We think, oh, we, no, we shouldn't suffer. Well, why do we think we shouldn't suffer? Isn't the Bible full of suffering? Isn't the Bible full of faithful servants of God who suffered? Who were ridiculed? Who were made fun of? Who were laughed at? Who were put down? Who were betrayed? who were beaten, who were spit upon, who were continually mocked, who were publicly mocked, who were killed and tor or tortured and killed for their faith to God. Yeah, the, the book is full of that. The book is full of that. And that's the lens we see things. We understand that. And they did it for his sake. For his sake. First uh, Peter, we read some text out of there a minute ago, that he established us as a chosen people, right? He says in verse 20 of chapter 2, what credit is, it, uh, is there if you do wrong and are beaten? Right? Like there's, we think like we shouldn't be suffering. Well, we, uh, we think that we shouldn't be suffering, but, but there are times we should. And, and is it cre really credit to you if you did something wrong and you suffered for it? No, it's no credit. So 
So I want you to think there is credit. There's credit somewhere in our suffering. And it's not when we suffer for doing something bad. He goes on. He says, uh, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So what is the credit that we get for suffering for his sake? It brings favor to God. It brings blessing to God from God for us. He says, for you were called to this. This is the New Testament now trying to make sense of the old, right? And in view of what they've seen and heard and Certainly, they have seen the Lord Jesus crucified at this point, right? And, and raised from the dead. You were called to this. You and I were called to this. Called to what? Suffer. We were called to suffer because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What is Peter saying? Go looking for suffering. Not for your credit, though. For his credit. For his sake. For God be made much of you should follow in his footsteps for he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth and when he was insulted he did not insult in return when he suffered he did not threaten but here's what he did so as we suffer for god's sake for for christ because he suffered and left an example it should be us who suffer for him for his credit and as we do he says when jesus was was suffering he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's hard for us to do, isn't it? For you and I. As we suffer, as we, we stand in truth and we proclaim the Lord's truth, as we proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ, as we live that out, and as we suffer, God says, just do that and, and do it like Jesus, entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. There's a blessing in that. There's credit in that. There's favor in that. Jesus said it in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely and, and say every kind of evil against you because of what? Me. For my sake. Not, not for your sake, for my sake. When you, when you go out there and you take a stand for me and do it for my sake, you are blessed and they are going to persecute you and you are blessed. He says, be glad and rejoice. That's, that's hard to do. I mean, the psalmist is having a tough time with that, be glad and rejoice, right? next time I see you and you're like, I'm really struggling here, I'll just say, be glad and rejoice. That'll help you out, right? You'll be like, Brandon, you, you're, you don't, yeah. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great, where? In heaven. There's an eternal thing that when God, it's God who establishes us, he's not just establishing you for your victory today, it's, it's for your eternal victory in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. For, and, 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 and here's the great part too, we're identifying with not only Christ, he says, for this is how they persecuted the prophets who had gone before you. Yes, it's, been, it's happened since the beginning. Persecution has happened since the beginning. I, I want to I read just a little excerpt out of this commentary. The crux of verse 22, the idea that, that because of you we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, uh, Kidner in his commentary says this. Uh, it, it, the implication here is, is a revolutionary thought that, that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. Now, at times, God disciplines us, but as we suffer for doing good for Him, it's a battle scar. And it's a battle scar, why? Because it is a price that we pay 
for loyalty to the Lord Jesus in a world that is at war with God. You know, if you go back to the big, small progression we have, um, I think that Israel, I tell you what, once Israel was established as a nation and once they had these kings that were, were good and, and man, the enemy was being killed and, and put the, like, you can't come against us. You're, you can't, you got nothing on Israel. I think Israel got too big for their britches. Because if you really think about it, Israel has never been a majority. If you really think about it today for you and I as Christ followers, as Christians, we are in no way, no way a majority, Right? We are like a super minority. We feel big. You know why? We have a big God. But we will not always be big here on earth. We will likely always be small until that day when he returns and settles things once and for all. So I think part of our suffering and our struggle when we suffer, and we look around like, why is there this injustice? Why is this? I think part of it is we're getting too big for our britches. And we got to look at ourselves in the mirror again and preach to ourselves and say, hey, who said you were ever going to be the biggest and best? Like Jesus Christ, God of the universe, who came to earth and gave his life as a ransom for many, was crucified because they thought he was going to get too big. And in the super minority, was squashed, but they couldn't keep it down. Why? Because the power of God through the Holy Spirit has persisted through the church to this day. Amen? We'll let that encourage us. We'll let that lead us and guide us. We'll let, we'll let that truth permeate us, that we don't have to be big as a, as a Christian group. We have a big God. And we will identify with Him as we suffer and as we struggle because that's how they persecuted the prophets before us. That's how they persecuted the Lord Jesus. And as, as long as we live, all we want to do is proclaim the praises or the excellencies of the One, the One who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Paul writes in Philippians, he says, just, just one thing. Remember Columbo? Just one more thing. Right? He always, now is cracking the case. Paul says, just one thing. As citizens, right? oh, that sounds familiar. What's the truth? We are established. It's God who establishes us when we have faith in him. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then when I come see you or I'm absent, I will hear about that, uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any That's crazy. Paul, writing this from jail, by the way, Philippians, right? he, he tells them, he says, you, you stand in unity, you stand firm, you contend for the gospel, for the faith of Jesus Christ. You contend. That's our, that's our marching orders, by the way. Right? And he says, while you contend, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them as they come against God and God's people. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. Well, what else has been granted to us on Christ's behalf? Not only to believe, but what? But also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, Paul, and now hear that I have. Sometimes I, I meet with people and they, they're struggling and they're like, ah, life is, is hard and it hurts and I, I, I can't seem to get through to my family or my family member about Christ or my friend or I just, I, I, I seem like I'm getting nowhere. I seem like there's always a battle going on. And I tell, I tell them this. You see, evidence 
of a battle going on in your life is evidence that the Spirit is at work. That God is doing something. And that Satan hates it and wants to devour you. If it's all cushy and nice and you're on the beach with an umbrella and a drink a little with a small umbrella, like you, something's probably wrong. You probably should feel like you're the one in the ocean getting ravaged by the sharks. That's how we should feel because that's the world seemingly big against the seemingly small because they are against God. Listen, we will certainly suffer for His sake in a world that is at war with Him. I don't know about you, I would rather identify as being on His team, though, instead of theirs. So, what are the truths we have learned here so far? It's God who establishes, number one. Number two, it should be for His sake that we suffer. And finally, number three, the truth in the face of trouble, it is God who will bring us home. It is God. You know, I think sometimes we succumb to the world around us and kind of let, let the pressures come in and kind of start looking and behaving like the world. And God's like, who the, who the heck are they? Are they going to bring you safely home? No. You want to feel safe and secure, but they're not the ones that are in charge of your soul. I am. So be okay being in unrest with, around them and being safe and secure with me. It's him who will bring us home. Let's look at Psalm 44, 23 to 26. The psalmist continues to go on. He says, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get, get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and, and forget our aff affliction and oppression? What, what are they saying? God, we need your help. And, and more often than not, what we need God to do is, is speak to our heart and let our hearts fill up and swell with more of Him so our, our faith would increase, that our trust would increase. He would rem remind us of who He is and has always been and what He has promised to us. God, we need your help. He goes on. Uh, why do you hide? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Verse 25, for we have sunk down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. This goes back to the Psalms before. Why, O oh soul, are you downcast? Right? This is that start of that turn of preaching to yourself again and, and making sure that people know this is, this is where we ought to be. Why have you, or we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. And, and I, I don't know about you. I've read this a few different ways. It's, I probably read it wrong, but I, I think that he's saying, God, rise up, right? Help us. But I think there's some kind of preaching to ourselves too. We've sunk down low, our heart is down low, our soul is down low. There's a point, and you have to look yourself in the, in the mirror and say, rise up, get up. And you turn to God and say, God, help me. Help me rise up. Help me get over this despair and this hurt. Rise up. And it says, redeem us because of your faithful love. Your faithful love. Again, it's amazing. He's preaching to himself, just like in Psalm 42 and 43. He said, why are you so, so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? But he said, put your hope in God. That's his, God's faithful love. Put your hope in God. And he said, I will praise him forever, my Savior and my God. The psalmist in 90, Psalm 94 said this, if I say my foot is slipping, then he says, your faithful love will support me, Lord. Listen, when, when it comes, comes upon us and it comes around us and our foot is slipping, we say, God, your faithful love will support me. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Can a corrupt throne be your ally? A throne that makes evil laws? They, verse 21 of Psalm 94, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. That's what they do. And we feel that. They, but, in verse 22, you, Lord, but the Lord 
is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. Listen, listen the, the remnant here of Israel, always that small, seemingly small, but big because of the Lord, that small minority group knew the faithful and steadfast love of God and that he had established them and that they could trust in him and that he would come through for them. How much more do we know? Now that we have seen the Lord come and offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for us. In fact, this passage of scripture from Psalm 44 is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. I encourage you to go home and read all of Romans 8 later on. I'm going to get a short part of it right here, right now, today. He says, regarding this, this affliction, this persecution, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is it that opposes you? Is it God? Not if you're in him. Who can bring an accusation? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. God is for us. And if God is for us, who what can be against us? We ask the question, what can separate us then from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And he says, for it is written. Here, here it goes. He's going to quote Psalm 44. It is written, because of you, Lord, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We feel it, right? We feel it. It's intense around us. The pressure is mounting all around, and people are coming against us. But Paul reminds us, like the psalmist, who can come against God's chosen? Who can come against those who have put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ? Even if we are led to the slaughter, who can come against us? And he asks the question, what can separate us? Even if that happens, and he answers it in verse 37 of Romans 8. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, whatever comes your way, you have put your faith and trust in God and he has established you as one of his. Nothing can take that away. Paul's explaining that God's steadfast love to his people makes it so that no power in heaven, no power on earth can separate them from his love. It's the same thing we see in Psalm 44 where God's faithful remnant, they continue to trust in him and hope in him even as they experience undue suffering even unto death. So one thing we can learn from the psalmist, I, I love as he went through this, the psalmist did not try to console himself with like this complicated theology, like, let me explain suffering away. Let's, let's make sure we totally understand this. But he also didn't turn to the Lord in, in, in sinful anger, but he responds to his pain and to the suffering by running to the God whose love he knows. 
And, and really, it's as simple as that for us. When we struggle, we face temptation, we face persecution, we, we have to know we will probably face that all of our life this side of heaven. But when we do, we can run to the God that we love. Well, the last passage today is from 2 Corinthians. I, I, I want us to understand that in the midst of this suffering, we can, we can really look alive to the world around us. <clears throat> we kind of sang a song about this earlier when we first started, but it says now we have this treasure, this treasure, this, this power of God that God's established us. We have this treasure in us that we're jars of clay so that this power might be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus might also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. We are all going to get scars and battle wounds as we trust in him, as we are persecuted for him, as we face the pressures and difficulties of this world, that, that will happen. We certainly have to evaluate, is this happening because I am sinful? And we need to adjust that and repent. Or we can look and say, with a clear conscience, I haven't done something against God, I haven't forsaken him. This is just being suffering for his sake. We take it as, as battle wounds, scars, running to Jesus. And as we run to Jesus, as we live our lives, we reflect, you can scar me, you can beat me, you can bruise me, you can ridicule me, you can kill me, but Jesus lives in me. And my life is hidden with Christ. And you can't take that away from we trust in Jesus. We have new life. Trouble will come. But it cannot take away our hope. And it cannot take away the new life we have in Christ through faith in Him. So my encouragement to you is to look alive wherever you go, despite what happens. Amen? Let's stand together as we worship the Lord and I'll have the worship team come back up and we'll pray together. We'll invite our children to come back in and join us. Now we respond to him in song. Let's pray. Father, there's so much going on in our world around us, and God, so much that brings us despair, and God, at times, feelings of hopelessness. But God, help, help our faith to rise up in you, knowing that you have established us, Lord, and that we, we will suffer for your sake because you suffered. They killed the God of the universe. But God, that we can trust in you and we can hope Hope in you. Thank you for your love. God, we ask that you would well up in us life and trust and hope in your faithful, steadfast love every single day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.